0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And if it's your first time here, we cover military history from Napoleonic battles to Cold War confrontations, from Normandy to 9 11. And we open up new perspectives on how wars have shaped and changed our modern world. In this episode with Dan Snow, Dan speaks with one of the greatest war historians of all time, Margaret Macmillan. Margaret is the author of a new book, War How Conflict Shaped Us. And together, They discuss the ways in which war has influenced human society. Enjoy.
2: Margaret, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Very, very good of you.
1: You've written books about military history before. You've written about the First World War, the beginning and end of the First World War. You've written about the British in India. But this book is huge. This is a book about war itself. It's quite an intimidating subject. Where do you start?
2: Well, it's a terrifying subject because it's so enormous and so many people, often very great historians and novelists and others have written about it. And I was asked to do the BBC Reith Lectures, and it gave me a chance to think about a subject which I've thought about on and off for years and, and of course, talked to you and, and others about. And I thought, I won't try and do the whole history of war. That's impossible. It would mean volumes and volumes. What I'll try and do is just pick out themes of war which interest me and which might interest other people. And so why do we fight? How do we fight? What does technology mean? How do we try and stop war? Those sorts of subjects. So it's really it's a series of explorations, I suppose, of of different aspects of war. It's by no means the complete history of war.
1: Did you go into the argument whether we are by nature warlike? And where did you sort of end up on that?
2: I went into it because I thought it's very important and it's still something that we're much preoccupied with. And I think I came down perhaps typically in the middle and I thought, you know, we do have things that biologically are part of us. We have certain emotions, we have certain ways of reacting. I mean, I think the old flight or fear emotion reaction is a very strong one. I mean, I think we've been programmed for for centuries to look out for threats and and to try and avoid them or to try and fight back if, if we can't avoid them. But I don't think biology is the whole explanation about why we have war. I mean, we may have certain instincts and impulses, but war is highly organized, And it's purposive. People are doing it because they want to do something and they want to achieve something with it. And it takes a tremendous amount of organization. And so I came down sort of in the middle saying, yes, we may have certain impulses that make us able to fight. But the fact that we fight is very much conditioned by our culture and by our rational side. We think about war and we plan for war and we make war. But I do think if we look back through history and archaeologists and others are now pushing back what we know about the human race, which, of course, was around for a very long time before we started recording anything about ourselves. I think we do know that violence is part of most societies. I, I don't buy the view of pastoralists living peaceably with each other. I mean, there's more and more evidence that they were just, just every bit as violent as we were and could be as violent as us.
1: How important do you think, therefore, war has been in shaping society? I mean, Has it been one of the sort of prime motors of our development, of the place we're at today with our nation states and our technology? I mean, do you see war as as essential to our story?
2: I do. I think it's very difficult to actually separate the development of society and our institutions and our ideas from war itself. And I don't think one precedes the other, and I don't think one dominates the other. I think both interact with each other. And so a lot of our social development and the development of some of the things we see as institutions have been very much, has been very much affected by war. And in turn, the ways in which we organise our societies and think about ourselves affect the sorts of wars we fight. And so if anything, it's, it's like two things that grow together and influence each other as they grow. But I don't think one comes before the other or dominates the other.
1: What were you very struck by in terms of how different societies have organised themselves in order to meet that military challenge.
2: I was very struck by the societies which had a very strong warrior ethos. Um, Again, I think cultural factors are huge. I mean, if you think of Sparta, for example, where the young Spartans of free families, the boys were brought up to be soldiers, and it was shame if they didn't behave bravely in battle. And, and, you know, the famous thing the Spartan mother said to, to their sons as they went off to battle, come home with your shield, because losing your shield was a great disgrace, or come home carried on it. But, you know, one or the other death or or dishonor was something that you wanted to avoid at all costs. And so that struck me, the ways in which certain societies train their young, particularly their men, almost predominantly their men, to fight and organize themselves around fighting. And other societies didn't. And of course, what also happens is societies change. Uh, Sweden was a highly militarized society in the 17th and 18th centuries, and, and their soldiers were known all over Europe for being ferocious, ruthless, um, dreadful. You, you got out of the way when you heard that the Swedes were coming. And Sweden today is a very peaceable country dedicated to peacekeeping, dedicated to finding ways of, of settling disputes without fighting. And so I think there's always change possible. But I was fascinated by the way in which certain societies seem to have primed themselves to fight effectively and primed their young to fight effectively.
1: Given that all societies have faced military challenges, why don't we all, at the risk of sounding a bit like a Darwinist, but why don't we all become like Sparta? Given that war tested all of these societies, didn't everyone just go, well, let's just tr- become like an armed
2: camp, like Sparta? I think other values were important. You know, how do we think about ourselves? How do we try and, and live with others? How do we try and build? As, as, the, as many of the Greek city-states did, they built leagues where they worked with each other and they worked out laws of war to try and mitigate the effects of war. And I think there's, there are always these contradictory impulses. And fighting is, inside the views of, of some people, glorious, but it's also tremendously costly and it drains the resources of society or can drain the resources of society, can drain the talents, the lives of those who fight it. And so I think we've always seen this tension between those who think fighting is a good thing and the most noble thing that human beings can do, and those who think it's a waste and it's folly. And almost as early as war, you begin to get attempts to to deal with it, to think about it and to try and see it as something that needs to be controlled and and ideally outlawed. And so some of the great early thinkers, St. Augustine, for example, thought about ways in which war could be prevented or or mitigated. And I think these are contradictory impulses, which are often in tension. And I think you're quite right. I mean, societies are not one or the other. And often, I think, in in democracies, you will get people who don't particularly like fighting reaching a point where they feel we have to. I mean, the British public did not want another war after the First World War. But the behavior of the Nazis, the constant breaking of, of promises by Hitler, particularly, I think, the takeover of the remainder of Czechoslovakia, in 1939, simply persuaded a lot of British people that they didn't like, much as they didn't like fighting, they were going to have to do it because it was a matter of survival and it was a matter of dealing with an enemy that was not going to stop.
1: Speaking of Hitler and, and the Second World War, why is war proved so alluring?
2: Well, I, I know it's, it is a mystery, I think. But when you also think of the cost of war, not just those who fight, but the innocent bystanders, the civilians who get caught up in war and, and often get killed or held hostage or, or made into slaves, I think... Policymakers have tended to think often that war is a weapon they can use to achieve a particular end. Um, There's a lot of talk about controlled wars, and we see this even today you know when the, when the occupation forces the, the invasion and occupation forces went into Iraq in the second Iraq war, I think they thought they could topple Saddam Hussein and, and solve all problems and so I think there is a temptation to think you know if we just apply force in the right way. Um, scientifically. I mean, I I hate that term surgical strike. The idea that you can somehow use violence to achieve a very neat and tidy end is a very alluring one. I think the other thing about war is that it does have an attraction. And if you go to any bookshop, you'll see literally rows of books on war and very few rows on peace. I mean, it's just not a subject that, that people find as exciting. And there've always been those who thought that war brings out the noblest side of people, that you are prepared to work with others, die for others. And so I think there is that allure of war. And I think it still is there a bit in societies that war is somehow something noble. And so I think we get a number of reasons why, why people want to fight and why societies think that war can be useful. I think you know the rational thing for me is to try and avoid war if you possibly can. But you know, as the British discovered in, in 1939, you can't always avoid it. Is there
1: confirmation bias? Do you think policymakers, politicians, look at Genghis Khan and Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and think, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely like those guys, not like Napoleon Third or Adolf Hitler or the far, far greater number of people that have sought to roll the iron dice and have paid for it with their life and the destruction of all they hold dear?
2: I like the phrase confirmation bias because I think we all do this. We all look for examples which suit us. And history, of course, has hundreds, thousands of examples, and you can search through history and find an example to prove almost anything you want. And I think those who who have power or aspire to power often like to think that they are like the great figures of the past, that they can do great deeds. You know, Napoleon was impressed by Alexander the Great. Um, He wanted to be like Alexander the Great. And then others came along and wanted to be like Napoleon. And, of course, what we tend to forget, if we're only looking for the great heroes of history, is all those who, who came a cropper who did not succeed, who damaged their own societies. And I think, actually, when you look at Napoleon, um, I, I don't buy the great adulation of Napoleon. He left France in a mess. He wasted hundreds of thousands of lives. He, he destroyed other, other cities and, and places in Europe. But I do think we, we tend, you know, if, if those who want to be powerful look at the past and say, ah, you know, that's a very good example, I can be like that. And perhaps they should remember those who who didn't succeed.
1: You mentioned earlier the allure. Does it show humans in our widest possible sense?
2: I think it shows us, yes, I do, I think it shows us at our best and our worst. It can bring out the, the bestial, and we all know that dreadful things can happen in wars. I mean, one of the real problems in a war is you train people to kill, but then you need to keep them under control, and it, it's, it's trying to keep under control people you have turned into, if you, if you succeed, into efficient killers. I think that in a war we also get things like comradeship, uh, people willing to die for each other, we don't get in ordinary civilian life. I mean, we're not usually put to that test. And what comes out so often to me in the war memoirs and the the, the the novels about war is this sense that we have never known such comradeship before as we do when we're fighting together, and we'll never know it again because you're simply in a different set of circumstances. And I suppose for a lot of us, I grew up in, in, in a peaceful world. I grew up since the Second World War, and I suppose we often wonder is what would we be like? Could we do it? Could we be as brave and as noble and look out for others as, as people will do in war? So no, it is. Uh, it, war is I think in, in many ways a, a mystery and I think it's very hard to explain. And I think it does encompass great varieties of human experience from, from the best to the worst. Okay,
1: Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to
0: sell The Ancients podcast. What is The Ancients, I hear you say. Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names.
2: It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction.
0: We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to The Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
1: Let's talk about some of the ways it's shaped our culture and technology. How has it
2: shaped us today? Well, something you mentioned earlier, and, and that is the growth of strong central governments. You know, that, that in order to fight a war, you need, before, you need the capacity to organise. You need, at the very basic, uh, most basic level, you need to count how many people you have, you need to find the soldiers, you need to train them, you need to find the equipment for them, you need to make sure they have enough to eat, you need to make sure they're properly led and they're sent off in the right direction to do whatever it is they're meant to do. And that requires a degree of organization. And the more you get good at organizing, the more likely you are to be successful when you send your forces into battle, and the more likely you are to become more powerful. And the more powerful governments become, therefore, the more control they can have over society. So again, the two things really go side by side. The capacity to wage and make war and the growth of strong central government tend to go along with each other. And I found that absolutely fascinating. I also found the ways in which wars had unintended consequences interesting that we have seen, as a result of of great wars, the great wars of the 20th century, in some societies, a real levelling, a closing of the gap between the very rich and the very poor. British society came out of the Second World War a much more equal society than it had been when it went in, and the same thing was true of American society, of Japanese society, and I think that's something which, of course, we wouldn't make a war to make societies more equal and, and to give help and support to those at the lower levels of society, but that is something that war does, and war also can bring great social change, changes in the position of women. At the end, even before the First World War ended, the British government brought in a bill to give the vote to women over the age of 30. And that was, I think, very largely in recognition of the part they had played in the war effort.
1: It's impossible to separate out, I suppose, war. We're talking a lot about disease, of course. And you look at the growth of the modern state in northern Italy as a response to the plague. People are talking about that at the moment. But also technology, because so often technology was so combined with war, you know, the same steam engines that could drive textile looms could also create better munitions and armament?
2: No, well, I hadn't realised until I started doing some work for this book that some of the best early cannon were produced in Europe by people who'd been making church bells because they'd learned how to make strong metals that would not collapse when they were banged. And so often technology will be driven by war, and and often things that are too expensive in peacetime will become necessary and possible in wartime. Uh, Very near where I live in Oxford, there's a sign on the wall of what used to be the Radcliffe Hospital, which says, here, the first successful use of penicillin took place in 1941. And penicillin was discovered before the Second World War, but it was considered too expensive to produce. And then the war came, and it was, of course, important to be able to treat people on battlefields, and suddenly penicillin was produced. And it has saved, of course, millions of lives ever since the war ended and and during the war itself. And so often wars will push ahead kinds of technology. And then, of course, often again, it's always a two-way thing, in in my view. You'll get technology changing war. And so the introduction of gunpowder was going to make a huge difference to war. It suddenly became possible to hit the enemy without having to grapple. And you still had to be close, but you didn't have to actually run them through with a sword. The invention of the crossbow and the the, the, the development of the longbow really, I think, spelt the doom of the knights in armour on their horses because it was now possible to pick them off by people People standing on the ground could pick them off. And so often technology will change the ways in which war is fought and make a real difference. I mean, those who learnt to use gunpowder successfully were going to have an advantage over those who couldn't use it.
1: We had someone on the podcast about drones, and they were saying the lesson from fighting in Syria is... However many drones you've got, you need ten times that number. <laughs> so yeah. clearly technology is having, it's going to have a huge impact. Do you think much about present and future war as well?
2: I do, and, and of course it's something historians don't like to do. We don't like to speculate on the future, and we have enough trouble dealing with the past, so we, we try and stay away from the present and the future. But I do wonder about it. I mean, my thought is that on the one hand it's developing this extraordinary technology. You mentioned drones and the capacity to send these things, often very big but often very small, to do damage to targets often quite far away, Um, cyber war, uh, war in space, um, development of all sorts of new technology, development of artificial intelligence. I mean, we're seeing war move into new areas that we hadn't even imagined it would move into about 10 years ago. But we're still seeing the old sorts of wars, the sorts of wars where people get up close and and hack each other to death. A lot of the deaths in war these days are not from the high-tech end. They're not coming from high-tech weapons. What they're coming from is machetes and hoes and and very simple rifles and very simple guns. The the majority of the deaths in some of the wars that go on in places like Yemen, Somalia, Libya, are not from highly sophisticated weaponry. They're from things that would be familiar to people fighting 100 years ago. And I suspect we're going to see a sort of bifurcation of war on the one extreme, this extraordinary sort of space-age stuff that looks like something that's come out of movies. And at the other end, a sort of miserable grinding war, which will continue to cause huge numbers of deaths and continue to cause real misery to civilians who are caught up in it.
1: Do you think that we have learned finally, the lessons that quite a few policymakers in the 19th and early 20th century didn't make, which is war is now so unbearably destructive that it's almost useless as a tool of statecraft, particularly between nuclear powers.
2: Well, it does worry me. I mean, before the Second World War, there were a lot who said the power of the aircraft and aerial bombing is now so deadly that no nations were will willing to go to war because of the, of the destruction that will be wrought. Before the First World War, you got people saying the capacities of the European countries on both sides are now so evenly balanced that the potential for stalemate is huge, and so no countries willingly will go to war. And we did have an uneasy peace, of course, during the Cold War, kept partly by nuclear weapons, by the prospects that both sides could, could, get, could, if they started a war, would end up with mutually assured destruction. But what worries me is that people will still think they can use it, and they'll think they can control it. I mean, during the Cold War, there were all these sort of, in retrospect, very odd theories about controlled escalation. You know, we will drop one nuclear bomb, and they'll drop two, and then we'll drop three, but at some point we'll stop. And one thing we know, I think, is that war is unpredictable and uncontrollable. And Once you start it, as policymakers and generals have found out down through the centuries, you can't always bring it to an end when you want, and you can't always say where it's going to go. And what also worries me at the moment is the capacity of of powers, and I'm thinking, for example, of the United States and, and China or China and India, to get themselves into positions where backing down is difficult, you know, national pride gets involved, and I'm always aware of the potential for an accident. You know, something happens, someone gets shot down, a plane gets shot down. Uh, an Armenian plane, I think it was, was shot down today. That has the potential, such incidents, to let things escalate and get out of hand, and that worries me. So I'd like to think we're too rational to engage in an all-out war, but we know that accidents can happen and people can find themselves in positions where it's very difficult to back down war is
1: predominantly seen as a masculine activity how have you found women have related to war are the differences important
2: it's a big question and i'll try and answer it briefly it's a fascinating one there's a long long debate about whether there is a real gender difference whether that you know whether men are fitted biology by biology they, they, they tend to be on the stronger spectrum end of the, the spectrum of strength uh, are they more aggressive they, they tend to have more testosterone does that mean that men are fitted better for, for being warriors and, and women are not? And I'm not sure the evidence is at all clear. And I think culture is so important in shaping those who become fighters. Not all men become fighters. And not all men want to become fighters. And again, I think it depends very much on their training, how they're brought up, the values of their societies. And there are examples of women fighters down through history. We now know that there really were probably the Amazons, or at least the people who gave rise to the Amazon legend they have found archaeologists have found burial sites around the Black Sea of women warriors who are buried with their full armor and, and seem their skeletons show the marks of having been hit um, and damaged probably in, in battle and certainly a lot of military today are having women come into the military, and so I suspect the reason women haven 't fought probably is more cultural than biological it 's really because women were never expected to fight. And on the occasions when they have fought, they have tended to fight much as men do. Um, there's a very interesting book by Svetlana Alexievich, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature about Soviet women in the Second World War. And they were fighter pilots, and they fired artillery, and they were guerrilla fighters, and they seem to have done every, well, every bit as well as men.
1: Margaret, what about peace? What did you end up thinking about peace? Is peace an absence of war? Is peace something that you can strive for in the same way that people seek military advantage?
2: I think peace is not just an absence of war. I mean, peace is something that needs to be maintained and supported and, and worked for. And what it involves, I think, is is good leadership, um, those who are willing to work with the other side and and try and find compromise. And I think increasingly in our age, what peace involves is is public opinion. I mean, before the First World War, there was an enormous public opinion in favor of peace, um, peace movements, peace organizations. And again, after the First World War, I think before the the Second World War, there was tremendous support for the League of Nations. And so I think we should, and, and we have done this throughout our history, be looking for ways to avert conflict, to try and find peaceful ways of settling disputes, arbitration, for example, and to look for ways to deter or punish aggressors. I mean, we, we haven't perfected it, but it seems to me we have gone a long way in, in developing international organizations and, and international law. And I think this is something that we, you can't just expect it to happen. You have to keep promoting it and working for it and strengthening the institutions and the laws that, that at least have some possibility of preventing war and mitigating war.
1: You don't seem optimistic about an end to war. I mean, I remember in the 1990s, we all thought that history had come to an end and it was all wonderful and there would be no war wars and things. That sort of optimism has disappeared. We we have not seen an end to war.
2: I don't think we have. I mean, at the end of the Cold War... There was this brief hopeful period when we were going to get you know, peace around the world, everyone was going to become democratic, national barriers were not going to ma- matter so much. I remember a friend of mine saying, you know, the world is changing. They, he said, everyone in the world is listening to Michael Jackson. Well, we all know how Michael Jackson um, fared and, 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 you know, he disappeared from the scene, leaving behind a rather bad reputation. And there was talk of a peace dividend, all the money that could be spent on peace. And then Yugoslavia fell to pieces. And other things began to happen. And we see, I think, around the world since 1990, there have been wars pretty much every year. And there are wars today which don't show any signs of ending anytime soon. So, no, we haven't got away from war, unfortunately.
1: Well, thank you very much for coming on this podcast. Your book is called War.
2: It does have a subtitle. It's called How Conflict
1: Shaped Us. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.